all throughout Europe and the U.S. and North America. Colleges and universities have become the biggest employers, real estate holders, healthcare providers, and even policing agents. Higher education has become big business, and our cities have become their company towns. This is the Dependance Podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars, and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen. And today we're going to talk about the uneasy relationship between universities and the cities they inhabit. We often think of universities as merely noble institutions, contributing to the public good, bringing ideas and people together, and generating new innovations. But there's a downside that is often overlooked. As it turns out, urban universities are a big driver behind gentrification, displacement, housing inequality, even police brutality. And our guest today has written a very powerful book about the shadows of the ivory tower, with the telling subtitle, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. Let's listen to a lecture by one of America's foremost urban thinkers, historian Devarian Baldwin. Thank you so much for allowing me to present before you. This is really a pleasure and an honor. Um, we had an amazing conversation uh, this afternoon at Erasmus University, and we will continue it in a new and wonderfully uh, engaging context this evening. So thank you so much. Thank you for the dependence. Thank you for the host. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm here with my son, who was just you know, uh, jet lagged. So he said, I came to the morning. I'm done. I'm tapping out. But I'm still here. I'm ready. I'm energized. <laughs> I'm energized, and it's, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, let me make sure I get this right. Yep, got that, that, okay. So, the, the, yeah, please, come, come. Yeah, please, join us. Uh, the, yeah, no, come on. Take my seat, please. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, the title of my remarks right now are The Rise of the Universe City, and, and, and you'll be like, what the hell is that? But you'll, hopefully you'll find out and understand in a minute. Um, so, since the rise, since at least 2001, uh, when it was named the European City of Culture, Rotterdam has worked to unlock the potential of culture as a driver of innovation. We've heard that word before, yes? Innovation, whatever it means. Um, specifically, economic development. As in most parts of the developed world, we have witnessed the outsourcing of industrial production to the global south and the east, which has meant the declining significance of feeder systems like Rotterdam's harbor economy. And nations like the Netherlands have scrambled to mine the power of the so-called creative sector as a new, quote unquote, driver of prosperity. And that's a quote from the Cultural and Campus uh, press material, which we'll talk about in a minute. At the center of this new formulation of economic development sits uh, our city's urban universities. Our schools have become not just sites of workforce training and innovative research, but they have become city managers in their own right. Networking laborers and industry, stimulating private investment, and serving as land developers on their own power. Erasmus and other schools here are no different in this regard. It was recently announced that that university, this, the university here, is the lead partner on a 150 million euro project to boost the competitiveness of Europe's cultural and creative sectors. The catchphrase here is, quote, Diversity is the front door to innovation. Let's say that again. Diversity is the front door to innovation. But what does diversity actually mean in this project of what's actually in primarily economic stimulus? For that conversation, let us turn to another Erasmus-led project in the city, the Kultur and Campus. Headlines proudly announced that higher education is heading south. 
This campus is promises to be a space of education, a place to collaborate and create solutions, a place to recharge by strolling along the revitalized southern waterfront. Rotterdam South is known for its low-income neighborhoods and high percentage of residents from migrant communities. It has been targeted over and over again by authorities as, quote, a problem area, some going as far to, um, to assert that it contains unique un-Dutch problems. So in this context, many tout the Kultur campus as a project of social impact, leading to a more diverse intake of students close to home, offering jobs to its residents, while also studying social issues unique to Rotterdam South. But as much as this is touted as an educational endeavor, as a cultural project, the press materials from this project reveal that Kultur and Campus as more than anything, a land development project organized to draw creative professionals and tourists to quote unquote, resettle the South. One of the first lines in the Kultur and Campus press, uh, press materials makes clear that Rotterdam sees the generous space available and makes good use of that space. And certainly the so-called problem diversity of the South has been used to trigger economic stimulus for the campus itself, like the 2018 regional deal made with the central government. But with all the celebration, where are the residents in this project of social impact? Will current residents of the South still be in the area to actually benefit from this new development? Amsterdam is still relatively affordable compared to other European cities, but housing pressures have already forced even those who would never look south to be considering to resettle in that very area. So how will this new campus development turn the area into a quote-unquote hotspot that makes it no longer available or affordable to the current migrant communities? We, know, we already know about the increase in the zero tolerance policing in the Rotterdam South, an approach that was imported to my home city of New York from the ages of Rudolph Giuliani, the zero tolerance policing. So to what degree are current residents not just being consulted, but are they having a decision-making role in discussions around the kind of education, the need for social housing, and the terms of working conditions that will take place on this new campus. The Couture Campus is certainly a project of innovation, no question. But we must be compelled to ask exactly who is this innovation project for? The current residents of Amsterdam South or the creatives and young professionals that they hope to draw in to make better use of the space? So no matter where you stand on the true social impact of projects like Couture and Campus, one thing is certainly certain. This act of university-driven development in Amsterdam, in Rotterdam, excuse me, is part of a much larger story. And in the time remaining, I hope that my remarks spark conversation about how, how events and projects like Couture and Campus do and do not follow international trends. So the bigger story. All throughout Europe and the US and North America, colleges and universities have become the biggest employers, real estate holders, healthcare providers, and even policing agents in major cities and towns all over the world. With this kind of influence, comes the possibility that universities make cities and towns more vibrant places to work, visit, learn, and live. Do you, do you all have that phrase yet? Live, work, play? Is that become a marketing phrase here yet? If not, it will be soon, okay? <laughs> so, so, and so today, in order to create this environment, everyone wants a campus, either to develop and build out the ones you have, or create from scratch a campus in a so-called campus drought neighborhood or area or town. And so university developments, they often involve transformative commercial corridors like uh, Cornell Tech 
on Roosevelt Island in New York City, the Innovation Corridor in Winston-Salem. And see, literally here, you can see literally rising from the ashes, uh, it's once dominant tobacco industry, making way for the Wake Forest University-driven uh, uh, Innovation Corridor. So again, mining the power of university tech and research as a anchor right in the middle of what had once been a predominantly working class black and brown neighborhood in the downtown area. This was once an all black commercial district in the Jim Crow segregated Winston-Salem. Now it is the, the anchor for a new innovation showcase. Here we have the biomedical campus um, in, oh sorry, biomedical innovation center. <laughs> My mistake. In Phoenix. <laughs> Here we have Miami Converge in South Florida. And then we finally, we can also expect newly contri contrived and constructed facilities like the glittering glass and steel that we see in the proposed partnership between Virginia Tech and Amazon in Northern Virginia. So again, even Amazon wants to partner with the campus. So the question I ask or I beg with you, I, I sit here with you and say, well, why? Why does everyone want a campus? Why do towns want campuses? Why do cities want campuses? Why does Amazon want a campus? What is it about the campus form that is so viable, suggestive, seductive, uh, alluring? What is it about the campus form that makes everyone want to have one? So in these projects, we have seen higher education's growing control over the economic development and political governance in urban areas, or what I call the rise of universities. Higher education has become big business, and our cities have become their company towns. But there was a cost for those living in the shadows of these ivory towers. Cam's expansions, they also raise housing costs and displace residents in the neighborhoods that largely surround campuses, usually working class neighborhoods, neighborhoods of color. Higher education's broad control over labor I'm talking about low, not faculty, but low-wage labor, service class labor. Their control over this labor can lower wage ceilings and suppress collective bargaining efforts for the whole city because they are the biggest employers in not just small college towns, but in major metropolitan areas. So if they refuse to, to, to raise wages, other, other uh, industries don't have to either. This is the power of universities. Non-private university medical centers emphasize profitable boutique services, high-profile research, or prioritize student services to the detriment of caring for the host communities that surround the hospitals. And then finally, unique to the U.S., campus police forces surveil and profile the very same residents that we're discussing in the first three uh, uh, segments or bullet points. So even if schools that you see don't hold all of this power, we are witnessing greater swaths of our cities being turned into a campus. So how do we get here? What the hell happened? First, we have in the US, but also in other parts, in parts of Europe as well, uh, and all throughout North America, we had what has colloquially been called white flight which is really a misnomer because white people weren't flying or fleeing. They actually were the only ones allowed to chase capital as it left central cities and moved to the periphery. So when everyone was trying to leave, they were the only ones that were allowed to leave. So um, as white flight, I'm just putting that in quotes, as white flight happened, uh, universities tried to leave, but they were too big to follow, not nimble enough. So they instead bunkered themselves in the cities behind walls of residence halls, uh, 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 classrooms, state-funded demolitions took place to clear space all around campuses to create safety so that universities would not follow and would feel relatively safe in central cities. And also the language, so when they couldn't leave and uh, uh, federal governments began to support kind of protecting them, Language began to change. They stopped being called just universities. They started being called anchor institutions. Have you heard that phrase before? 
anchor. So, so they, 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 they're firmly rooted in cities. And instead of being a detriment, that became an asset. They were called economic engines. We're talking about in the 60s, not now. In the 60s, you began to see this language already taking shape. But at the same time, their, their approach was balkanization, being bunkered, fortification, right? So are you familiar with the brutalist, techno brutalist architecture? Most universities took on a brutalist stance of stay away, turning inward. The backs of campus buildings were facing the city. That was their approach. But then in the 90s, we begin to witness what's been called a back to the city movement. The grandchildren of suburban sprawl got sick and tired of 7-Eleven or cookie cutter houses that looked all the same. And they might have went to school in the city and they want to stay in the city. Or young professionals were beginning to, to engage in this thing called, you know, uh, 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 tech startup companies, uh, design laboratories, where they were converting warehouses and cities into hipster environments of tech and uh, uh, loft conversions into open plan living, loft living, yes? Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so the city became hot again. So different city governments began to compete with each other for figuring out ways, how do we lure these new urbanites to our city as compared to the other city? So what was the idea that these urbanites had of urban life? Walkability, riverfront development, museums, coffee shops, Wi-Fi connectivity, lectures, so their idea of the city was a campus. That's on one side. On the other side, the actual campuses were facing budget crises in the 90s and 2000s. At one point in time, uh, uh, the government uh, paid about 70 to 80% of the operating costs of universities, public universities. But now, they contribute about 10%. So public universities were slowly becoming public only in name. So universities were trying to figure out different ways to become, and you'll love this phrase, to become entrepreneurial, right? How do we make up for our losses not receiving money from the government? So they said, how do we monetize our campuses? How do we become hot to attract investors, to attract more students? So in this 90s period, you have a moment of powerful interest convergence between the interests and needs of city leaders trying to attract urbanites to this city as campus, and you have actual city campuses trying to figure out ways how to monetize what they do in education and their infrastructure. So these two entities came together to figure out ways how to turn the city into a campus. You with me? You tracking? Okay. So, central to this whole idea of turning the city into the campus is question or are questions of urban form. So, we begin to see this retrofitting of neighborhood blocks in ways that are uh, reorganized to engage in wealth extraction for the interests of these city university partners. At the center of this monetization, this wealth extraction, was the rising significance of knowledge work in our various regional and national political economies. What do I mean by that? So we're talking about the, the, the decline of industrial production in the global north, because we all know we buy stuff that's still produced maybe just not here. And so you have the, the decline in global production in the urban north and the rise of the knowledge economy throughout the global north. What is that? This is the point where you have academic research and development being used to create profitable commercial goods and patents in a range of fields from pharmaceutical industries, yeah, software production, healthcare services, and military defense weaponry. So the university became the central engine, not just of ivory tower development, but economic development for our entire economies more broadly. 
this knowledge economy. So in order to make that possible, though, how are you going to get students and researchers to come to these very neighborhoods that you were a, 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 a 10 years ago telling them to be afraid of? You got your, all your buildings with their backs to the city in the middle of an urban crisis, and now with the new knowledge economy, you will say, come back, come study, come research. Network the campuses with the startups, with the city, with the ports. How can you do that? In comes this new architectural form called the knowledge community or the innovation district. Heard that before, right? Okay. So, key to recruiting the best students, faculty, and their families to do this knowledge work was creating urbane clusters of laboratories, housing, retail, and nightlife in these variously called innovation districts or knowledge communities. In fact, the term knowledge community is actually a patent, patented phrase on the part of this development company called Wexford Science and Technology. They develop only projects that are partnered with universities. So here on the left, you have um, uh, uh, Bakery Square, which was an old working class neighborhood of factories in Pittsburgh. What do you see on the top of the tower? Anybody can, can, you, can you make that out at the very top? Who's up there? Google, right? The, the desire to make Pittsburgh the Silicon Valley of the East. Partnering with uh, Carnegie Mellon, a very strong upper income tech school, right? On the right, you have Harper Court in the middle of what was considered to be an extremely dangerous south side of Chicago. Right plop in the middle is this development called Harper Court, partnered with the University of Chicago. Um, so these knowledge communities, they sit right in the middle of communities of color or working class neighborhoods where the land is relatively cheap for developers, not for the residents. And these communities have very little political power to push back. So these developers, in partnership with the city, in partnership with the universities, have capitalized on these areas to engage in better use. Sound familiar? Did we just talk about that a minute ago? Right? That these spaces are empty. I mean, it's very settler colonial, right? There's no one there. The spaces are empty. It could be, it could be used differently or better, right? We're going to uplift. All the same language that you're hearing here has been going on in the U.S. for about 40 years. So you're seeing the long arc of the story. So ultimately, what I'm saying here is that put your urban planning hat. Where's my urban planner at? I know we just talked. Okay, put your urban planning hat on for a minute, right? What does it mean for the campus as an urban form? to be seen as a planning mechanism to build out universe cities by retrofitting neighborhood blocks to maximize wealth extraction based on land control, labor management, and the privatization of governments. You have these many neighborhoods in the middle of existing neighborhoods where everything they're doing is organized around keeping researchers, students, and their families in these spaces of safe zones where the laboratory is next to the nightclub, is next to the retail district. So you're always what? You're always working. You're always feeling safe. It's not a community, it's a lifestyle. Right? This is the full materialization of what we're talking about, the urban turning the city into a campus. So three areas I want to talk with you about. Two more relevant to you than the third, but to give you a full texture of what's going on in other parts of the world. Land, labor, and policing. Off the top, in the US at least, university land is property tax exempt. Why is that important? Who cares? We should care from a long-term form because, because it's property tax exempt, in the context of the knowledge economy we're talking about, this means that private investors like Google, General Motors, uh, uh, Amazon, they want to partner with campuses because partnering with them and doing their research and development with the university provides a financial tax shelter. It reduces overhead costs because they don't have to pay property taxes. 
So they, they, they purposely partner. Wexford only deals with university projects because this provides a financial advantage, especially if, say, you are a startup company that's not affiliated with a university. You are inherently placed at a disadvantage because you have to pay taxes. So the irony of this is that universities are property tax exempt in the U.S. because they're presumed to offer a public good. I call this the public good paradox in the book. Why? Because it's precisely their public good status is that allows them to transfer public dollars into private interests, to monetize their campuses for private development and economic partnerships with private investors. It's because they're nonprofits that they're able to do this. They've read between the lines. They found the loophole. So this is all totally legal. So that's one story about land. Another story about land, so just real a quick story. Um, this black neighborhood in New Jersey discovered what was going on in, in uh, uh, Witherspoon Jackson neighborhood. They, their properties were, were going up in terms of their property taxes, but the maintenance and development was going down. They wondered what the, why. And they realized they, they sat next to Princeton University buildings and that on Princeton's campus, they were partnering with the multinational pharmaceutical company, Eli Lilly, churning out patents and research and development, making millions. But part of that was because they were, net, they were tax exempt and they were passing the cost on to the community that was paying taxes. So they filed a lawsuit and won an $18 million compensation for taxation in 2016. And one resident was so disgusted by what he discovered that he called Princeton a hedge fund that conducts classes. <laughs> but it's not just tax exemptions. Even in a country like Canada where they don't have the tax exemption phenomena, you have the process of displacement or studentification. And you'll, you'll know this story. So as the campus expands and moves to existing neighborhoods, um, Campuses are growing right now as, as a way to become entrepreneurial. They're bringing in thousands of students, but they're not building housing. So that then increases housing pressures on surrounding neighborhoods, raising up prices, displacing old residents, creating noise conditions, different uh, approaches to lifestyle. So this happened in Montreal a couple of years ago when they built their new science campus. The university failed to build student housing on their campus, and the city had promised to build social housing so that people could stay because they knew that there would be housing pressures. They failed to do that. And so the effects on the park extension neighborhood is that property costs soared. They became a, a small landlord saw that university affiliates were coming into the city, so into the neighborhood. So they were figuring out ways to evict long-term residents, delaying or deferring maintenance, hoping they would leave, and then upcharging the prices. So you had a rise in evictions. And then soon, luxury apartments were replacing social housing and low, lower income housing. So low income and immigrant communities were being displaced. So this is, a, some, this is a different context, a different story, but a larger question about the land issue with universities. And then labor. We think primarily of labor, we think primarily of faculty. Lazy, <laughs> one class a year, hanging out with students. But we need to know that, at least in the U.S., 75% of people that teach are contingent workers, basically glorified uh, day labor, gig, gig workers, day laborers, going from school to school, trying to pull together a full job without any health benefits because they don't work a full-time job at one place. That's one part of, of, of the labor piece. And again, universities are the biggest employers in cities and towns across the world. The other part of the story is that they aren't even the biggest labor force on campuses. What about the low-wage ivory tower workforce of janitorial staff, medical assistants, cooks, clerical, maintenance, security? They're the ones that keep these universities going. And many universities do not offer a living wage. These workers primarily work on a nine or a 10 month cycle because that's when students are around. And so their wages are so low that they still qualify for public assistance even with a full-time job. 
Now, these workers are beginning to unionize. Maybe you've been watching on the news the strike waves running across the U.S. from graduate students on to, 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 to staff workers. But universities have pivoted. They said, okay, we might have a union contract, but, we're gonna but in the future, we're only going to deal with subcontractors for our labor, a third-party subcontractor. And so even when the contract is secure with the union, more and more laborers are being hired through a subcontractor, and so the conditions that are secured through the union don't apply to the new workers. So that's labor. Finally, policing. Oops, sorry. Let me go back. Finally, policing. This is unique to the U.S., but in the U.S., 75% of colleges and universities have not security staff, independent police departments. 75%. Most of them carry weapons, and nine and 10 of them have jurisdiction beyond the main campus. Some have jurisdiction over the entire city, Cincinnati, New Haven. In Chicago, you Chicago PD, they have jurisdiction wherever there is a new building. So what does that mean? That ultimately, campus police are the front line. They set behavioral dictates through policing of areas where the university wants to follow with a physical footprint. One uh, 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 local alderwoman in Baltimore, where they're fighting against Johns Hopkins University creating a private police force, um, she was so disgusted. And she, she, was a, a, she, a, she's a, she has a PhD from the university, Johns Hopkins University. She is an alderwoman in the district where Johns Hopkins University is. And she said, especially at a private university, they only answer to the board of trustees of the university, and they're armed. So she likened this to creating a Vatican City in the middle of Baltimore. The power. Because what ultimately happens when you, have, when you have your own police force, you have your own governance and the capacity to enforce your values, enforce your beliefs, enforce your rules over non-university affiliates. So the point I'm making here is that the two earlier issues around land and labor that do apply to other places around the, around the world. While policing may not, I want you to see the degree to which these institutions, will, the links they will go to, to secure the wealth that is being hoarded and developed on these campuses through graduate student labor, through the suppression of wages for staff and support staff, through the dismantling of the tenure uh, uh, faculty lines towards adjunct labor through the extension of their physical footprint throughout the city. It's not just that. In the U.S., they are protecting this wealth with a private security team, with their own police forces. That's what you want you to understand the magnitude of this phenomenon. But there are other alternatives. There are ways of thinking about this differently. So the, uh, at the University of Winnipeg in Canada, in central Canada, uh, not, they didn't do it because they had a good heart. <laughs> uh, they saw some handwriting on the wall. In the 1990s, they had the traditional model of predominantly white, predominantly middle income or upper income students that could pay fully for tuition. That was their student body. But in the 2000s and 2010s, they began to see a drastic increase in their population of students. They went from 6,000 students to 10,000 students. And the majority of those students were not that traditional demographic because they weren't, they don't, they're not having kids, right? That's, that's the huge concern. White families with money ain't having kids. What are we going to do, universities? So these are primarily um, immigrant families, indigenous families that, sur that surround the campus. And so they realized that in order to meet the needs of these, these, these students, they couldn't see students as these individual consumption units that come, buy their food, get their housing, pay for classes, and go home. That the sustainability of these new students required the university to support the entire community because these students were closely tied to their communities, had cultural ties, had daily ties, had responsibilities to their communities. So they had to build out housing, labor, that could meet the needs not just of the individual students, but their families and the community where the, where the campus sits, which is primarily immigrant and indigenous. So what does this mean on the ground? They built this building called the Downtown Commons. The 13 units with, uh, with uh, uh, balconies, our premium rate units, 
They help pay for everything else. The rest of the units are a range of uh, um, market rate, affordable, and then the more affordable rent geared to income. The great thing about this is that when you, when you move into these units, the, top, the, the, the lower three tiers, you don't know what kind of unit you're getting into. They're all the same. Because of the leverage of the university, they were able to make an agreement with the province to um, get an uh, affordable housing exemption so they could have the same kind of finishes, the same facilities, um, all have uh, air conditioning units. That's something that affordable housing couldn't have. But because of their university, they could make the leverage push to say all units have to be the same. And the province agreed. They have um, Wi-Fi that you can buy in your individual units, but if you can't afford that, the common areas have free Wi-Fi. And um, the lower tier has uh, 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 communal EV stations, electrical vehicle stations. So that's one thing. Uh, the community charter, they, uh, if you don't know anything about uh, Winnipeg, is cold about 10 months out of the, out of the 10 or 12, 11 months out of the year. So they built a new rec center facility. Uh, it's governed by community charter. This means that community groups have governing power over use of the facility during key hours during the day. For football tournaments, uh, powwow events, uh, knitting circles for elders, indigenous elders, this is something you don't normally see. And we can talk a little bit about diversity foods as we get into the Q&A if you want. So just keep that in your mind. Ask me about diversity foods in the Q&A. Okay. Uh-oh, this fell. Not having a good time right now. Okay. So um, I want to end, and I will end right now, you know, really quickly, is that this became an inspiration, all that I saw, both good and bad, for doing work in not just research sharing, but in advocacy. And this became the foundation for my Smart Cities Lab. And if you're familiar with Smart Cities language, the idea of the technology can govern cities better than people, we push back and say the smartest cities develop without displacement. That we insert or reinsert the human scale into the notion of smart. And that's on purpose. Um, I love to engage with common terms that are used in one way and use them differently. So, in the lab, we research and consult on best practices for building out equitable urban communities. And we focus on higher education-driven uh, development. This is important because some of the things that we insist on when, when universities are in developing these neighborhoods is that first they pay their taxes. These are called pilots, payments in lieu of taxes. We argue that if you're going to build into a community or neighborhood, it must be governed by a community benefits agreement. This can include things like access to facilities, like with the community charter. It also can include an insistence on them building affordable housing or affordable housing land trust so that a portion of the, of the profits of these developments go to a land trust to create affordable housing. Um, this can, intrude, can include zip code specific, because sometimes you'll have community projects, but it could be anywhere in the city, and the same people get the benefits, not the community surround it. So you'll have, so we call for zip code specific um, uh, uh, free education, zip code specific living wage job opportunities, and zip code specific procurement contracts. So as you are beginning to think about, well, how will the university be serviced? We insist that small businesses in the area serve and have protected contracts with the university. We also call for in the planning offices of every city to have a community-based planning and zoning board that specifically focuses on university and nonprofit developments. With this, we will craft out, we call for crafting out neighborhood plans on all campus development projects. And then finally, we, for policing, we call for a vision of police abolition, campus police abolition, a project of divesting in armed policing and investing in a thing that universities actually can do well. Community safety in terms of health care, trauma care, food security, health security. These are things the university actually set up to do. So we say, divest from armed policing, invest in community safety in the broadest sense. These are things that we have called for. These are things that we are actually um, being successful in moving forward on. Um, just a couple of last examples. Uh, sorry. Just a couple of last examples. Um, we are working with uh, the, uh, uh, the states of, many, of, of Massachusetts and, and Rhode Island to push forward 
pilot agreements for all nonprofits in those states that they'd be governed by. We, uh, I, I mentioned to a, grad, a medical student in, in Philadelphia the idea that there's low-hanging fruit to just simply, why don't you go to your cafeterias and, where you throw away food every day and take that and package it into healthy meals to distribute it to communities of need. Just last, about three weeks ago, they started doing that. They have a Philadelphia food redistribution program, no help from the university, all volunteer-based, all medical students. That's happening right now. Um, in New Haven, in concert with the organization called New Haven Rising, we came together and engaged in a multi-month-long project during the middle of the pandemic. I came and gave speaking opportunities, teach-ins, we had rallies, we knocked on doors, we uh, bullied city leaders and university leaders, and ultimately, this is, this is a university that has a $40 billion endowment, right? And they offer $10 million a year in tax relief. So small victory, but a victory nonetheless, we forced them to offer an additional $52 million over the next six years for tax relief. Um, so these are some of the things that we're working on, that we've been able to think about, vision, and implement. But the key through line here is being able to see the conditions of unique universities, seeing their strengths, seeing their capacities, seeing their resources, and saying, how can we free the cafeterias? How can we free the classrooms? How can we free the laboratories in ways that are in service not to a profit university, but in service to a people's university? That is our vision, that's our goal, and this is what we mean by smart cities. And it's important to understand that this is not just simply academic. This is not an ivory tower boutique project, right? Because universities and colleges and the medical schools are the biggest employers, the biggest real estate holders, the biggest healthcare providers, and the biggest policers in their metropoles. So as goes the university, goes the world. Thank you. Thank you, DeVarian. It was quite a powerful statement to make Thank and you. on our way to the People's University. So yes. let's, uh, let's, yes. let's navigate around this. But sure, sure. Um, you've also been part of the seminar at the rest of the university uh, yeah. earlier today. Yes. Let's also discuss this, this okay. a bit. But first one thing. Mm -hmm. How do you, because you say it's a very historical phenomenon. Yeah. First the city's emptying out, yeah. coming back, yeah. creative class, creative economy, yeah. and the universities are, are deal makers mm -hmm. in, in that new economy. Yes, central. S central. Mm -hmm. um, how do you explain the lack of pushback on this mm -hmm. development? That's a great question. What's, what's, where, where should yeah. we look when, when mm -hmm. it comes to why are we not more talking yeah. about this and who should be the actors mm -hmm. doing something around it? I, I say that we are, we are enamored, we are lured with, with what I call the myth of the schoolhouse. And what I mean by that is that we have inherited an idea and we continue to perpetuate the idea that the primary job of universities has been to teach classes and conduct peer research. So even though we see them engaging in development, even though we see them celebrated as job creators, we only govern them based on their primary function. Um, my good colleague Craig Wilder says that after reading my book, he realized that education, teaching classes has become a side hustle for higher education, that the real work they do is the development work, is the, is the labor management work. And so it's, it's, we're of two minds here that we see what's going on, but we're still enamored with the press around what universities actually, what, what, we, what we hope for them to be. They still teach my children. They'll become a pathway to upper mobility. But we don't see the cost of what they're doing in our lives, and so we don't talk about them the same way that we talk about an Amazon yeah. or talk about you know, uh, a Shell Corporation right, or Gulf or what have you, um, or BP. But they are the dominant economic entity in our deindustrializing cities. And so we must talk about them from an economic business perspective, and we don't do that. So, so this is what I would say. So, yeah. so what, what do we look? It's a new reality, but yeah. we're not we're, 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 there's, a, there's a lag, yeah. Yeah. a conceptual lag. Yeah, yeah. And so I hope that my book and my work is an opportunity to prick the consciousness. It's not so much that I'm telling you stuff that you don't see. I'm giving language and frame to help make sense of what you already know. Right? Yeah, totally. 
What kind of responses do you see from different city governments? I mean, mm -hmm. you, you've been, in your book, you have to several cities all over, yeah. all over the US. Yep. Uh, you've been to Europe before, mm -hmm. uh, now mm -hmm. you're here in Rotterdam. What kind of yeah. responses do you see? I mean, are most of them embracing university because they are the new economic motor? Yeah. Or is yeah. there also a that's different it. response you see from different... No, that's no? it. Okay. So, that's so, it. So, okay. so, but I'll just real quick, like, yeah, sure, so yeah. you all heard the name Richard Florida, right? Creative cities, creative, creative cities. class. Yeah. Um, Quite a dominant I, I discourse. I think he was consulted here as sure. well. Mm -hmm. um, he, you know, so... Uh, we, we know each other, and he's made, he, I think his consulting fee was $250,000 for every city that would come because all of these post or de industrial cities were looking for answers. And he's like, here's my answer to creative city, creative class. If, if you build it, if you build the waterfronts and the coffee shops and the gay bars, the creatives will come. They'll populate. They'll re-energize their city. But in, you know, in over, as soon as it came out and shortly thereafter, there were immediate critiques that this this concentration of wealth and investment in these pocketed areas was reinforcing segregation, displacement, wealth disparities all around the edges of these areas that were being revitalized. And in, recent, in the last five years, he wrote a book of, to concede, a mea culpa. To concede, yes, I, over, I overstated, but this, I'm talking about two, two, two ways at the same time. Yes, I wrote this book, I'm gonna make money, I overstated, but at the same time, I'm in Sydney, I'm in Barcelona, still consulting on how to build out the creative city because they haven't yet read the book where I've offering my concessions, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so actually he, he, he asked for the book. He was going to write a blurb for my book, oh, okay. but then he read it and declined. <laughs> <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder. Yeah, I wonder why, right? <laughs> yeah, so there's that. Okay, mm -hmm. that's, that, 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 that's fascinating. <laughs> um, because what's so interesting also about, about, your, about your analysis is that who are the first losers in this process? Because, yeah. because you're, de you're describing something which was happening for the last couple of decades already. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where do you see that the first persons, sectors, or wh yeah. who's losing out first? And, and what, are we, what are we envisioning yeah. as further losers? So I would say the first, like the most immediate losers, yeah. are those um, uh, small, those companies that are not partnered with the university. So if you're engaging in you know, pharmaceuticals, yeah or um, software development, and you're not affiliated with the university, you can't, you can't keep up. Because you don't have that, in the US anyway, yeah. you can't keep up because you don't have that additional, um, you have that additional overhead in property tax costs. You have the additional overhead in the fact that you don't have suppressed wage graduate students doing the work for you for you know, a limited stipend. Whereas in the actual private market, those same students with an undergraduate degree would be working in the, in the business making double the money. Especially when they do some research, some good research, they might get double the money, but as a graduate student, they're considered an apprentice and they get the same stipend even though they are producing research that would come to market. So I would say they're the second losers, the graduate workers. And that's something that does apply Great here. business model, by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. If, you're, if, you're like, if you're from their mindset, it's, it's a smart business model because what happens? You donate a chunk of money to the university and you write it off as educational, educational purposes. That money then funds a whole ton of graduate students and the principal investigator, a faculty member, at a lower wage. And then a big portion of that money goes to the administration in the form of overhead costs, some money we never see. And then you charge, you pay the graduate students a stipend that doesn't include housing. And so you have this brilliant labor force doing this work for you in these knowledge communities for a suppressed cost at extremely high value. The money, the, the, the products don't go to a, an asterisk market. These are prime developments in real estate, in pharmaceutical development. And then on top of that, the research money that powers this research is federally funded. So then when you get your Moderna shot or your Pfizer shot, right, you don't get a subsidized cost, right? Your insurance company pay, charges you through, through uh, deductibles, if, if, if you have that, they charge you the full amount. But the research for that comes from government funding. So all these areas in which this private development, the celebration of innovation, it's all publicly funded. And yet, it's the, the story is, of you know, David and Goliath rising from the ashes of the factory comes this knowledge economy is self-generating productivity, innovation, development. It's all welfare. 
And not just welfare, but it's based on suppressed wages of the, working, of the workforce. And we don't talk about this at all because it's a school. It's a schoolhouse. They conduct research and they produce innovative discoveries that will be life-saving down the line. But you still pay, you still pay full freight. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Let's, 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 let's go here to, let's go, let's go to Rotterdam. You've been yeah, part of the seminar. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you were here for the whole day. Yeah. You already mentioned Culture uh, and Compass yes, uh, yes. as an example. Mm-hmm. How does your findings of the U.S. Uh, compares to what, what you're now yeah. seeing for a day here in Rotterdam? Right. I mean, you know, I, I, I talked about it a little bit earlier, but I just, just to reiterate, I mean, just to be clear, I am not an expert on Rotterdam culture or economy. No, but something must strike you. But, <laughs> but um, when I hear the phrases of innovation, um, I see that the original claim about coming to um, uh, Rotterdam South was about educational uplift, bringing civilization or education to the area. Mm-hmm. When currently, right now, there is a pathway project for residents, children to come to this, come to Erasmus, and it's, I think there are only eight students from that project, so that, that sends off alarm bells, right? Um, but this idea of bringing culture to the South, as if culture is not already there, bringing innovation to the South, as if these people have survived zero-tolerance policing, social housing, innovation is already there. So, so, so the, the, the issue for me, the concern for me is that, you know, you know, the claims of better use, as if the space is, already, is not already being used. These all sound like settler colonial phrasings that give me pause and concern. Do I think it has to go that way? No. But it just brings me concern, and I bring to you uh, stories where these frameworks are fully developed to say, just, just be aware. Get, don't turn your backs on this out of frustration and anger, saying, this is corrupted, this is gentrification, get into these boardroom meetings, get onto this campus, have these conversations, use your knowledge of what you have seen elsewhere or what you know and engage and insist on democratic buy-in and decision-making at the ground floor. Don't turn your back. It's better to be in the room than to turn your back in frustration and watch it develop at your back. So that's what I say. I think there are well-meaning people working on culture and campus and other projects like that. Work with them, engage with them. But when you realize, or if, there, if there's a moment when you realize that the, the terms of better use and innovation are only going to be used to push forward the vision of the university in partnership with private developers in the city, then you have to walk away. But as you walk away, amplify to the community what you see. But it doesn't have to be that way. Okay. So, so what kind of responses were you getting this afternoon? Because, yeah, I mean, yeah. in, in the end, the university is a villain in this story, right? I mean, I mean <laughs> a, a potential villain. Yeah, um, right. Uh, so you were it can go at, either way. You were yeah. at the heart of, 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 of university yeah. here in Rotterdam. Yeah, so the, what, 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 what was the atmosphere after your keynote? Yeah. Then? I mean, I think there was a little bit of nervousness on the part of the econo- economists. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, because they were kind of getting beat up a little bit, right, um, by people in the room. They got some bruises, yeah. Right, some bruises, but I think it's okay. I mean, we all, we all get bruises, right? Um, I definitely do. Uh, so I think people were happy to, to just think differently about things that they've seen. Um, I think that there are people that are working with like the pilot, the, the small version of Couture and Canvas, that's going to ho- hopefully scale up that were very open to saying, yes, we get that there could be potential problems with this, and we're trying to bring in community partners at the ground floor in terms of decision-making. We should lean into that. We should encourage them. Um, And so I think that's good. I think that um, those at at the top levels, they sent their team to observe the conversation. Um, and that's a, good, that's a good thing. And hopefully they'll get the, they'll, they'll get the, the report back, what happened. And, and, and I really, and I, I say, you know, as I build out this project and framework in, in, internationally, I hope that they invite me back to be at the ground floor to have this conversation, to learn the Dutch context, but then to bring my expertise from this international framework to think differently and broadly. I, I hope that happens. I hope that, that we can have a prolonged, continued conversation, that we can partner here with what's going on with um, uh, cities and citizens and, and my research in my smart cities lab. I think this could be a ground floor for a model for how to do this right. And there is some hope because you also presented Winnipeg. Yes. Uh, I knew it existed, but I had to look up where exactly, but mm-hmm. I found right, out. Right, right, right. It exists. It's, it's real. Yep. <laughs> and, it, and it looked cool, indeed, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> on the Google pictures. Right. Um, but 
What's interesting about the university is that it's the commons perspective or the commons governance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, in essence, what you're showing with Winnipeg is about yeah. all about how do you arrange the access and, yes. and, the, gov and the governance of this access towards That's right. what a university can bring from right. the positive side That's of the right. story. That's right. And for them, they had this vision of sustainability. Yeah. And it's four, it's four pieces. And, and, of course, the first one is like lead certified, it's like architectural, lead certified buildings, adaptive reuse. But you know you can still gentrify with all those frameworks, right? So the other three parts were um, um, social, economic, and importantly for this neighborhood, because this is the biggest uh, First Nations population in the world in this area surrounding Winnipeg. And so the fourth piece was cultural. And so for them, that meant that, for example, retrofitting the ventilation system of the of the building for indigenous smudging, knowing they would have to have housing at four price points for both students and residents in order to sustain the existing community. So sustainability wasn't just about food and buildings, it was about sustaining the community that's there so they wouldn't be displaced. That took guts, and it still wasn't perfect. So there was a sociology professor, he's a, he runs the urban studies program there, he said, listen, the indigenous communities that live in the north end of the city will never come to the main campus. They will see this as completely isolating. So he built a satellite campus right in the heart of the North End that has a small complex for high school students to come and, and learn. They have a, a kitchen so that those students who are, who are food insecure and the neighborhood's extremely violent to have a safe place to study and to get an after-school uh, dinner. Um, every, they have housing, all housing, at, not at the affordable rate, but all housing at the rent geared to income rate for students. These, these are adult students. They're all built in a townhouse fashion because most of these students have children. They're adult students that have children. And every unit has a, a separate unit free for an elder because they understood that counseling and connectivity to their community was going to be essential for the success of these students and their families to exist. So this is what we mean by sustainability. This is what we mean by embedded. This is what we mean by engaged. This is what we mean by societal impact that the logic and framework of the university is governed by the community where it sits. Because we know they are the constituents that make this university go. Not from a pie-in-the-sky, kumbaya, rainbow flag kind of way, but it's the workers in these communities that power this university. They, it's it's the, the, the future students, as again, white families aren't having kids. So as immigrant communities and indigenous communities are having kids, this is the student body for the future. The healthcare providers with culture on campus, the very language that triggered the millions in government funding came from seeing this area as being undeveloped in need of culture. So if you're going to use that language of diversity as the gateway to innovation, it can't be window dressing. Those communities of diversity need to be the ground floor deciding the future of these projects. Almost opening up the floor, but one last question sure, for you. Because what's sure. so interesting is we need a new perspective on universities, yes. how they're being governed and how they can be, well, coned as a commons, I would mm -hmm, say, mm -hmm. by, by communities. That's right. That's what's right. the role in this, maybe in Winnipeg, but in general, maybe, of the city government in this? Yes. Is, is that, is, they is have that, to play is a central that, role. They have, okay. Yeah, yeah. They, they have to. Yeah, okay. Um, because a lot of university expansion is built on uh, 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 city land. Mm -hmm. We know even here, major extension in the city from the universities came from city land being transferred to the university. So that kind of, if, if you're going to offer city land, there must be city neighborhood buy-in and responsibility. If you're going to build culture on campus, you have to build requisite social housing so that residents aren't displaced. If you're going to create a, I can't remember the name of the, of the neighborhood, a student ghetto surrounding the campus, yeah, yes. Right, and, it's, and that ghetto Crowning is east. Yes, thank you. Is growing because the university is, from an entrepreneurial perspective, is bringing in students that they don't have capacity to support, and they're living in city neighborhoods that come under the jurisdiction of the city government. There has to be greater buy-in, and what's happening right now is because cities want this energy, they want this development, this quick, this fast growth. They're pretty much turning their heads letting universities develop as they want. But they have a governmental mission to serve the needs of the entire city. That is their, that is their responsibility. That is the fiduciary duty to all citizens of Rotterdam. 
So they have to play a role because they're helping facilitate the capital. If they weren't facilitating the land and, turn, and, and, the, and the labor conditions, this wouldn't happen. Universities need these protections. They need the co-signing of the city to make this go. So we push back and say, you have to serve the university, but you got to serve the residents too that are being impacted by this. And we, can, and we can do that. We can do that. But currently we just don't because we don't, we don't I think many of us don't see a pathway. This, this, this development seems untouchable from a conceptual standpoint. It's a school. But once we begin to look at this in the same way we look at any other develop, uh, industrial development, then our eyes open up about what's possible to engage it in more equitable ways. You are listening to the Dependance podcast. Our editors are Sereman Diaz, Farid Tabarki, Geert Maarsen en mijzelf Thijs Barendsen. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plug Studio. And the graphic design is by Studio Space. The Dependance is kindly supported by the Creative Industries Fontanel and the Municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast. And check our website, thedependance.eu, for new episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next.